This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. The threat that Donald Trump poses to the future of our democracy is getting more alarming every day. He's telling all of us during his rallies on Fox and on his Truth Social platform exactly what authoritarian plans to have from vengeance and prosecution of his, quote, enemies. And it should raise serious concerns for anyone who cares about democracy. Over the past week, he's made clear his plans to reinstate the travel ban that kept Muslims out of this country. He wants to gut Obamacare for over 40 million people. He wants to shut down networks like MSNBC for simply doing their job and reporting the facts. And he plans to fire career civil servants and install even more extreme and radical far-right loyalists throughout his administration, a reality so frightening that it's so hard to fathom. But we must take all of these threats seriously if we want a democracy after this election. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. And today we are joined by Jonathan Carroll, who you know, I'm sure, not only because he's been on our podcast before for his first book, but because he is a regular on TV. Uh, John has had a hot new book out called Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. Yeah, Tired of Winning, what a great title, because he sure isn't tired of winning, because he loses so much. Um, that title inspired my hashtag Jill's pin for today. It was a gift bequeathed to me in someone's will who asked me to wear it when Donald Trump was gone. And although he's not quite gone, and even though the words in his two book titles were final and the end, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet, I still was inspired to select this pin for today. Um, I have ordered a loser pin, but it hadn't arrived yet. So I'm definitely happy to be wearing that. Um, anyway, I I am very excited to have uh, Jonathan Carroll with us. He is currently the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and co-anchor of This Week. He has covered every single major possibility of a beat in Washington. He's been the White House correspondent. Um, he's been the Pentagon reporter and the State Department reporter. He's reported from more than 30 countries. He has also been the president of the White House Correspondents Association. So John, you are exactly the right person we wanna to talk to today. And we are delighted to have you here to talk about your book and much else in Washington politics. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. No, it's so great to see you too. And the last time we had you um, with us, we talked about your former book called Betrayal, which has a subtitle that reads The Final Act of the Trump Show. Um, obviously, the final act is not yet over. And even the words, uh, the end in your new book, um, you know, while I would love for it to be that, I may be wishful thinking. So tell us what you discovered with your new book that will give us hope that this is the final act um, and the end of the GOP. 
Well, I guess you could look at betrayal as being the final act, but perhaps not being over. Um, uh, but I, I, I did think that 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 was the end of of Trump uh, after he left the White House, uh, disgraced and defeated, and soon to be, uh, you know, uh, a president soon to face an impeachment trial um, in in the Senate that uh, would take place with seven members of his own party voting uh, to find him guilty. Not, not enough to convict him, but but an absolute high watermark in American history. Um, but I set out to write uh, this book, and frankly, the storyline changed. Um, I, I thought I was going to be writing about the sad, lonely demise of such a president, such a former president. And uh, when I started it, the idea that he would uh, emerge as once again the 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 you know the power the 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 leading figure of the Republican Party and uh, a presidential nominee seemed preposterous. Uh, it certainly doesn't seem preposterous now, and and that was over the course of my of my writing the the book and I, and you can read it the the, the story arc. You know, I, I write about. Uh, there's a chapter in there called Dark Days at Mar-a-Lago, which describes uh, his first uh, days after he left the White House, which were indeed dark. Uh, uh, you know, Liz Cheney uh, has recounted Kevin McCarthy telling her uh, he's not eating. Uh, I, I I heard some of the same things. There's, there's an anecdote of him like getting up in the middle of a dinner at the middle of the patio at Mar-a-Lago, just just. just storming out for no apparent reason, uh, uh, going out and playing golf and not even making it through the 18 holes and just cuffing off. I mean, he was, he was out of sorts. He kind of found his, uh, his footing, um, in terms of perhaps maybe, uh, his mental health, uh, by DJing parties, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, literally he played DJ, um, this did not seem like a guy that was on a trajectory uh, to retake the political world at all, uh, even up through his announcement of his third presidential campaign, which was just uh, in November of last year, November 15th. Um, I, you know, I was there. I was there at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I was there, but very few people <laughs> that, that had been with Trump on his previous campaigns or in his White House were there because they thought this was a losing mission. I mean, there were no members of his cabinet, confirmed members of his cabinet there. Uh, there were none of his former campaign managers were there. Uh, none of his former chiefs of staff or press secretaries or, you know, it, it was like people like Roger Stone uh, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and brick man, brick suit man, the guy that wore, you know, brick suit styled uh, uh, suit, you know, uh, you know, like, like, looking like a brick wall, uh, was there in the second row. I mean, this is like, this is like, you know, D-list Trump world, um, uh, you know, celebrities. Anyway, so the, I, so the book did change, and now when I refer to the end, it's, um, you know, it's Donald Trump and his uh, takeover of 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 the Republican Party and really destruction of what the Republican Party once was, the end of the grand old party, the end of the GOP as we so, knew it. Yeah, I want to ask you a follow-up question because it is clear from your book that he was fading and should have faded and should have been gone. Um, the GOP, in my mind, is gone. Whatever is left of what is called the Republican Party is not the grand old party of my youth um, or even of my adulthood. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering about his mental capacity, his mental state, from two different perspectives. One is 
do you think that the the words that he spews have convinced him that he is God, that he is the savior, that he is their retribution, that he is their revenge, that he and he alone can save all of them. And he's, I mean, that he's, he's sort of portraying himself in a way that makes me wonder if the words are helping him to accept that he didn't lose. He's really the power. Do you think that's going on? Is that what you saw? Well, there is a, you know, a central question that affects the legal cases here about whether or not he knows he lost or whether he truly believes he won. And um, so that's, this is just answering part of your question. I, 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 it seems to me that he clearly knew that he had lost um, in, in the immediate aftermath and couldn't, couldn't acknowledge that fact because he thought it would destroy everything. If, if he was seen as a loser you know, his support base would, would melt away. He's not the kind of guy, I mean, I, I, I tell you that, um, the, the, the comeback story is, is, is one of the great American stories, uh, uh, somebody losing, um, and, and coming back. But I don't think that's a story that even though he wrote, he did write a book at one point called the art of, of the comeback, um, which by the way, is not one he talks about much. He doesn't, he doesn't pay because to acknowledge that you need to come back was meant that you, that you right. fail and, and he, he can never, ever do that. But I do believe that, um, he has lost touch with reality. Um, and I, I think he probably does really think that this election was stolen and maybe he thought Chavez did it with voting machines <laughs> from the grave. I, 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 I just, I do think that the guy has, um, and, and this is not me. This is, this is, this is people close to him who I've talked to. And I've, you know, I, I mean, I interviewed everybody around him. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part, people spoke with, with great candor, um, and, 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 and use that phrase to describe him as being kind of out of touch with reality. I mean, there, there's a, there's another section of the book that talks about he became um, obsessed with this idea that he could get reinstated as president of the United States before the next presidential election. I mean, this is whack stuff. This, this is this is this is QAnon, the far reaches of, you know, um, outlandish conspiracy theories. Uh, but they were emanating from him. Um, I mean, I, I didn't realize this until I started you know, working on this book, this was actually something that he was obsessed with talking incessantly to the people around him and not like a lie that he repeats publicly because he wasn't talking about it publicly. I think he had enough sense that to say it publicly, you know, people would, um, would, 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 would question his, uh, his sanity. Um, but he was talking about it incessantly with the people around him and, and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it that somehow Biden was going to be ejected from the White House because the world was going to see just how, you know, uh, stolen that election was. I mean, it's crazy. It it's is crazy. crazy, but it also is devious strategy. Um, it could be part of a plan to sell that idea to his followers. But I think, Victor, you had a follow-up. Sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, John, you mentioned the fact that, you know, when you were at his announcement um, in November, that there weren't many people left from his first administration and his, his first campaign. Give us a sense of who was at that um, uh, announcement and who are some of the people that are surrounding him now and giving him advice that clearly does not seem to be in kind of reality. 
you know, my, Mike Lindell was one of the most high profile people there. Um, and Mike Lindell, you know, the, the MyPillow salesman who um, had actually publicly talked in, in, in 2021 about the idea, the belief, uh, he said that Trump was going to be reinstated on August 13th, 2021. He had a very specific date and he'll, I don't know if you remember this, there's no reason why you should, because it didn't, it appropriately didn't get much coverage, but, but he had a, a big cyber symposium in Sioux Falls where he was going to release terabytes of data uh, you know, showing uh, once and for all that China or something uh, had gone in and, and switched the votes in the voting machines and the Supreme Court was going to vote nine to nothing to put Trump back in the White House. I mean, this is this is stuff Lindell was saying. And there he is, you know, one of the few recognizable faces at Trump's announcement in Mar-a-Lago. As I mentioned, Roger Stone was there. Um, um, also, uh, Sebastian Gorka. Uh, who is somebody who did who served in the in the Trump White House, but didn't last long even there. Uh, you know, he's best known for selling uh, relief factor uh, pills on uh, on Fox and various other places. Um, it was uh, uh, Boris Epstein, who um, is another guy who only lasted, uh, you know, a, a matter of months uh, in, in the Trump White House has now emerged as, you know, maybe one of his very most important uh, advisors, uh, he was there, but you didn't see people like, um, you know, uh, any of his chiefs. I mean, not, not even Mark Meadows was there, you know, you know, Mulvaney, Kelly, Priebus, obviously none of those people were there. I mean, not even Bannon, uh, you know, was down there. There was no Kellyanne Conway. There was no Sean Spicer. There was, you know, I mean, really, you know, Hope Hicks, none of the people that you kind of you think about when you think about Trump's 2016 campaign or when you think about his White House, they they all, you know, they were like, you know, no go. And also uh, he made a real effort to get members of Congress to show up. And mm-hmm. as far as I could tell, there were only two. Um, and one of them was Madison Cawthorn, uh, who had <laughs> lost the Republican primary uh, in Georgia. Right. Uh, so he was about ready this was november of 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 last year was about ready to pack up his office and become a former member of congress he was there um it was really a pathetic scene but as i but but i track where that's kind of like a low point for trump um there was a poll that came out a month after he announced in the wall street journal that showed ron desantis beating him by uh by about 20 points desantis was over 50 trump was in the 30s and, um, it, you know, he did, this did not look like a guy that was about to, to come back, but he found a message um, sometime after that, which I which I write about. And it was this message of victimhood and retribution. I, you know, I'm a great victim of, of the deep state. Um, I am, you know, they're coming after me because their real target is you, he would tell his supporters, and I'm standing in the way. He sold this. Um, and, and the, the, the watchword of the campaign, which was not mentioned at all, that announcement, by the way, not at all was, was, you know, I am your retribution. This, this is a campaign of retribution and vengeance. And was Michael Flynn there? And is there any prediction from who was there or who now is advising him as Michael to who might be the next cabinet? Michael Flynn was, was not there. Um, um, but, um, uh, he, you know, he's certainly on 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 the on the periphery, and I, 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 you know, and Trump has said actually, has said he'd be 
open to bringing him back in. I mean, which is a, a pretty extraordinary statement. This is the guy who literally, you know, suggested that martial law should be imposed to rerun the election um, after after Trump lost. Um, but uh, Rick Grinnell uh, is another figure. Basically, you know, he's kind of like an internet troll um, who uh, miraculously got for a brief period of time named as the acting DNI, the, 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 the director of national intelligence, the most important intelligence position in the, in the U S government. He was only there for a little while. He never could have gotten Senate confirmation. Um, but I mean, he'll be, he'll be back. Um, it, it, this will be, this will be a, a second term that is, where, where the single most criteria to, to have a position in the West wing or, or in, in a cabinet uh, is loyalty, loyalty to Trump. Um, and, and, and policy position is almost irrelevant. I mean, I don't really think there are Trump policies per se. Um, it's, it's really about unquestioning uh, loyalty to, to, to one man. Right. But uh, all right, that's terrifying, of course, that those people who were the ones who let the guardrails down could be a cabinet, but I just want to, you said in a second term, that's an if there is a second term. And there's a lot yeah. of work that has to be done to assure that democracy doesn't end and that the GOP does go away and Donald Trump goes away. Um, so I, and I should clarify, I I think it is highly unlikely that there is a second Trump term, but I think that I think it's important to confront the reality that it's possible. Um, I I actually think I mean we're only about what six weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. I think it's possible uh, that Trump uh, loses the Republican primary. I mean, as I just mentioned, this has not been a a straight line. I mean, he was at the start of this uh, a candidate that was losing to Ron DeSantis. Now DeSantis has proven to be less than a stellar candidate and Trump found his message and et cetera, et cetera. But I, you know, I, I've been covering politics enough and, and I know, uh, uh, you know, um, that Jill, you've, you've watched politics very closely and uh, for, for a long, long time. And, and we, we've both seen, uh, you know, candidates that seemed uh, inevitable uh, crash and burn. And, uh, if there's ever a candidate for crashing and burning and somebody as volatile and undisciplined as, as Donald Trump. So I, I don't, I don't rule out that he loses the Republican uh, nomination. He's obviously the front runner. And I'm like one of like five people left who thinks that he's not the inevitable candidate, but I, 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 I don't think it's inevitable at all. Yeah. I mean, anything can happen truly, but let's turn to some of uh, the other revelations that you uh, mentioned in the book. And there's one that's particularly relevant right now, which is you write about Kevin McCarthy and his plan um, to release all the January 6th footage. Oh, yeah. Didn't, but his successor as Speaker Mike Johnson released all the footage a couple of weeks ago. Have you done any reporting on Mike Johnson specifically and how close of a connection he has with Trump and just the sort of threat he poses to democracy and the Republican Party um, as it's now constituted? I actually in in um, <clears throat> in betrayal, I, I wrote rather extensively about Mike Johnson, who at the time was somebody nobody really had probably knew his name or, you know, Congressman Johnson. And it was that guy. Um, but he was a pivotal player, as now Liz Cheney has written in in the effort to overturn the election. I mean, 
one of the the more you know shameful episodes uh, in that period between the election and January sixth was uh, the Texas Attorney General case um, uh, to you know to the Supreme Court to try to get, throw out. This was the state of Texas uh, attempting to go to the Supreme Court um, to throw out the electoral votes of states that weren't Texas. I mean, it was like, why, why is Texas have a stay in how Michigan or Pennsylvania, uh, you know, a lot, their, their electoral votes and, and, and the way, and Johnson's role in that was to, uh, draft an amicus brief in support of that lawsuit. And then to go methodically, uh, to get members of the house to sign on to the amicus brief and doing it with a threat to his own fellow Republican members. He sent out uh, the, 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 the brief to everybody, asked everybody to sign on to support and said that he would be reporting back to Donald Trump uh, who had signed on and who hadn't. Um, and that Trump is very interested. I mean, it was a, obviously, a, it was a total threat. And as you recall, and I recount in the book, um, and this is, a, this is a really, really important moment in this effort to overturn the election that is that has largely been kind of forgotten. Um, but originally, uh, there was a group of about 100 or so members that signed on to the thing, but it didn't include the leadership of the Republican Party. So McCarthy had not signed it. And it was submitted to the Supreme Court as an amicus brief. And then hours later... In comes Mike Johnson doing an addendum to his amicus brief with a couple of dozen more names, including Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. um, and the explanation was that uh, there was a clerical error. You know, he just left off some names like the Republican leader of the House. I mean, it was clearly, you know, uh, M McCarthy was worried about the retribution that he would face from Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, Liz Cheney says, and I, and I wrote this in my book, and she's um, in betrayal, and, and she's elaborated on it now in her own book, that, that McCarthy himself told her uh, that, that he would not sign on to that amicus brief because he thought it was a bad, it was bad law. You it know, was. It was. Well, it was uh, atrocious law, and the Supreme Court didn't take it up. Like, they basically said, are you kidding me? <laughs> amazing. But I mean, it was a joke of a lawsuit and had all this crazy... Um, you know, allegations of fraud that were entirely unfounded. So it, it, the law was bad. The facts were bad. The whole thing was a was a disaster. And the idea that the vast majority of the House, the Republicans in the House, signed on to this thing is 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 a stain on 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 the history of that institution. I think. Which brings us back to hmm. the end of the GOP um, as it used to be constituted. And I'm old enough to remember when. The GOP was a group you could debate with on facts that we all agreed upon. There was bipartisan compromise to get things done, but that's gone. That's long gone. So based on the people you interviewed, is there any optimism? Is there any hope that the party can be restored to what it once was? Um, obviously, you, you mentioned Liz Cheney and her book is out, I guess, yesterday or a few days ago, and she's been very outspoken about her skepticism that there is any way to save and return the former GOP to what it used to be. I, I actually end um, 
on somewhat of a note of optimism. Um, and I, I, I talk about the, the profiles in courage within the Republican Party who stood up to Trump, some of them inside the White House, some of them in Congress, some of them in the States. Um, so I, I don't think that it's over yet. As I said, I don't think that the nomination's over. Um, there are, you know, some, there are Republicans who are horrified by what has played out, um, who are desperate to turn the page on this. Um, some of them have, have made that clear publicly. Some of them have been all too quiet about that, um, and are kind of, you know, wishing that he'll disappear. Um, but look, I mean, I all too many of them are out of are out of government now. The ones who really did stand up. I one of the one of the people I highlight is Rusty Bowers, the former Republican Speaker of the House in Arizona. He's as conservative and as uh, diehard Republican as anybody you'll ever meet, and he incurred the wrath of Trump and his acolytes because he refused to, you know, throw out the electoral votes of his own state. Can you imagine? Um, but he has stood up and bravely stood up and hasn't backed down. He was rewarded by losing his primary um, in Arizona. Um, you know, there are there are people like, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney's obviously decided not to run again. Liz Cheney uh, got defeated. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the 10 who voted to impeach Trump in the House, um, eight of them are gone. Um, uh, so. You know, it's a pretty grim landscape, but uh, but but I, you know, I, I I do believe that those are not outliers, that there are people that are, you know, determined to try to to save their party and, and realize that a return of Trump would be the destruction of that party. Yeah, that's frightening. Um, you know, one of the things that concerns Jill and I a lot, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this is what Trump plans to do if he loses the 2020 election and you reference um his close connections um to the militia movement tell yeah. us more about that and if there's anything you know when it comes to how the campaign might harness militia groups if he loses in 2020 if you fear there will be violence if he loses in 2024 yeah i so i i don't think that they're like literally coordinating with you know the remnants of the oath keepers or the three percenters or the militia movements but what what he's doing is he's clearly speaking the language of the militia movement um i have a chapter called come retribution which talks about the first campaign rally of the 2024 campaign for trump and this is not the announcement that i talked about in mar-a-lago this is several months later when he actually has his first rally, uh, the the announcement was at the ballroom at Mar-a-Lago. Okay, so th this this is when he when he finally gets out there and he chooses, of all the places to choose to have your your first campaign rally, he doesn't choose Iowa, he doesn't choose New Hampshire, he doesn't choose South Carolina or Nevada, any of the early primary states. He doesn't doesn't choose a battleground state for the 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 uh the general election no he chooses texas and not just any place in texas he chooses waco texas um you know right down the road from where the branch davidians the cults run by david koresh famously had their uh stand down with federal law enforcement in 1993 uh a a siege that ended after 51 days on april 19th 1993 a a date that is etched in marble for many um, extremists uh, on the right as an example of 
uh, an out of control government targeting and killing its own citizens. It ended with a, a federal raid, an explosion, an inferno, almost certainly set by the Branch Davidians themselves, but nonetheless, it killed more than 80 people and became the rallying cry for that right-wing militia group. I wrote a book about this, actually, uh, in 1995, uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing, which was carried out by Timothy McVeigh, one of these militia figures um, who explicitly said he was motivated by what happened at Waco. So here's Donald Trump going to Waco and using the same language of that militia movement about an out-of-control government that's targeting its own citizens, a deep state which must be annihilated and you know and destroyed. I mean, that's what Timothy McVeigh was trying to do when he went to Oklahoma City to blow up a federal building. Now, again, I'm not saying that Trump is calling for terrorist attacks, but the language is echoing the language that, that fueled the greatest domestic terrorist attack in American history. Words have consequences. Words have whether, consequences. Whether he precisely. is deliberately and directly calling for it, he knows that his words have consequences which lead to violence. But you're, you're raising an issue in my mind, which is, okay, so this is what has devolved from the GOP into mm -hmm. the Trump party. What is the alternative for those people like Rusty Bowers and others who have conservative Republican viewpoints from the past and who would like to see that return. Do they have any way to either bring back the Republican party to take control or in this election, do they have to vote for Democrats or you know, is there a Republican candidate that they could coalesce around who might defeat Donald Trump? What, what could happen to the Republican party? Well, time time is clearly running out. Um, but um, you know, you I mean, we're gonna have a debate uh tomorrow and a Republican debate that won't feature Trump. It's only gonna have four people on the stage. Um the one that clearly seems to have momentum is Nikki Haley, um, who you can find fault with or you can praise whatever, you know, she's not Donald Trump. Um there's DeSantis, who, as I mentioned, seems to be, you know, on a kind of slow, steady spiral down, but is not out. Um, and there's Chris Christie, who is barely, barely made the debate stage. It was just announced, um, who is now reviled by much of the of the Republican base. But, you know, I, I wouldn't surprise me to see him catch fire in New Hampshire. I don't know what he does after that, but, you know, who knows when something like that happens. So, look, there, there, there are possibilities out there but we're going to know this very soon and and the, the, the question that you're really getting at is what do they do if trump is the nominee um and um you know i, I think that part of this might uh depend on on democrats i i think that um i think and i think joe biden has this instinct um and he, and he tapped into it in 2020 but it, it's you know, finding a way um, uh, uh, to 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 appeal uh, to those that are that are horrified by Trump, but they certainly aren't left wing. Um, and you know, there, and there's a lot of impatience. You know, there's a whole, as you know, the, there's a there's an active, energetic uh, base of the Democratic Party that you know pushed Biden very hard 
to, to have a have a progressive agenda, which he did, one of the boldest and uh, most progressive agendas, I think, of a uh, of a president since uh, since LBJ. Um, but some of that stuff that frankly alienates uh, those Republicans that are horrified by Trump. So it's a it's it's going to be a balancing act uh, for Democrats. But I, I think that I think that Biden certainly understands that the way to ensure uh, that he will win, I think he's confident that he can that he can beat Trump again, is to is to appeal to those Republicans. And you're interested to see what Liz Cheney does, by the way. And Liz Cheney's been asked a thousand times since this book, you know, is out. You know, what are you going to do? And she's not answering, which is, you know, it's fine. She has to see where it's going to go. But Liz Cheney will do anything she can to ensure um, that Trump is not president again. And that could mean running herself on a, on a, on a third party ticket uh, under no labels. It could mean supporting somebody else who is running on a third party ticket, or it could mean uh, voting for Joe Biden. And I don't think there's any doubt that her anyway, if it comes to it, will vote for Joe Biden rather than see, you know, a, a possibility of Trump coming back. I agree with you. There was a very interesting discussion on Morning Joe today about exactly what Democrats could do, ordinary voters, what members of Congress and other local officials could do. And the discussion was one of the things that might have to happen is there needs to be a person like Cheney, Liz Cheney, running against Trump to dilute his vote. And, you know, I, I hope that he's defeated at the polls. Um, I, I also am a believer that the 14th Amendment bars him from being on the ballot, but that's a whole different thing. Um, and and I, I, I want to make sure we get to a couple of other questions, but one of them is about um, coverage of Trump and Biden's ages and about the gaffes that yeah. both of them are making and the coverage that Joe Biden gets. And uh, I I mean, he admits when he makes a gaffe. Trump makes gaffes all the time and pretends like he meant to say them. And his gaffes are growing tremendous. I mean, since you wrote the book, and I know how long it is between finishing and publishing date, Think of how many gaffes he's made that are, you know, confusing who he ran against. He ran against Obama. I mean, right. those crazy loony things. And it's not getting covered. His statements about vermin, um, which is so clearly out of an authoritarian, Hitlerian. Yep. Yep. Base. Why is that not getting coverage? Why did deplorables, when spoken by Hillary Clinton, get huge coverage? And his vermin doesn't. What's going on? And what? I mean, you were the president of the White House correspondence. Yeah. And what can people do? What can reporters do to make sure that there is equal space in the newspaper, equal inches, um, and equal minutes on television and on streaming platforms, whatever? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I, <clears throat> I I was president of the White House Correspondence Association, but I. I'm I'm certainly not a spokesperson for the quote media uh, writ large. Uh, even when I had that job, uh, which was really it's really a job where you fight for access in in the White House. It's not uh, the, the the Trump people would always get confused about this, um, especially Spicer uh, and his glorious reign as a press secretary. They didn't like a story. They would summon the the president and the Correspondents Association in to, you know, they didn't like somebody else. And I was like, dude. He, 
that person works for the New York Times. I'm not his editor and I'm not going to tell him what to do. Okay. I've got nothing to do with it, but I will make sure that you give him a seat at the briefing. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, that's like, um, but um, you know, th- th- these are, these are, these are tough issues. I, I, I've been, uh, I've strongly made the case over and over again in the book. And, and, and since the book came out um, that we need to pay attention to who Trump is now, not just the legal cases and covering all that, which do get, you know, extensive coverage, who he is, what he would do if he were uh, to come back to the president, what he's saying, his mental state, all of that. Um, So I think that, frankly, for a long time, there was a view among news organizations uh, writ large. Now, there are so many news organizations doesn't apply to all, um, you know, that um, that they didn't want to elevate what Trump was saying and, and, and give him and give him exposure. He's like off saying wacky things and uh let's kind of pretend it's not happening but now he's on the verge of potentially winning the republican nomination we have to pay attention and i think it's so i think it's starting to change i mean i think that the his comments about vermin are are not are are certainly not uncovered um uh i know i've uh i've had quite a bit to, to to say about it and it almost seemed like he was trying to prove the thesis of my book uh when he started coming out and saying this stuff and talking about January 6th uh prisoners as hostages um you know not not to mention like you said the gaffes warning about the dangers of World War II I mean can you imagine if we go to World War II <laughs> um uh and then he seemed to the just the other day uh get confused about how to spell Kevin McCarthy's name uh the, the first name which is not a particularly hard name to spell um so what are the alternatives to K-E-V-I-N? <laughs> He's he went K E V E N Kevin Kevin. Okay, oh, interesting. K even. I don't know. Um, <laughs> who knows? Oh my gosh! Well, we encourage everyone to buy your book and um and to go out there and purchase because there are so many revelations. But just maybe as one final question, in the same vein as of facts and getting people to hear the facts, how can we get people and maybe reporters? on the other side to understand the facts and dangers of um, this moment right now? Well, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a perilous time to be a reporter. I, I think it's, I think that um, I'm a firm believer in the idea of, in the importance of having reporters and news organizations that are dedicated to pursuing the truth and don't take sides. I mean, that look, you can, you can have very good partisan journalists Um you know the British papers are are our model, for example, and and the papers at the founding of the of, of our republic were all essentially partisan publications. But I believe in our era, it's important to have news organizations that go in and and that aren't partisans and can pursue the truth as to the best that we can to try to be objective and the best that we can. Um, but pursuing the truth means you know not being afraid to say what the truth is. And when you have somebody like Donald Trump, who has proven that he will defy the laws of our country, when he will openly talk about suspending the Constitution, uh, when he has a track record of trying to overturn a presidential election, uh, it adds up to being a threat to American democracy. And we have to be we have to be willing to to say that and report that because that's where the facts take you. Now, that said, my core of my being as a reporter is I don't take sides. <laughs> um, but
But the one side that I will always take and that I would encourage, you know, my colleagues to take is the side of the truth. Well, that's the right side to be on. Um, I just wish editors were more balanced in the time they spent on the false information um, or the false comparisons and criticizing. Uh, and I don't know if you know, but both uh, Victor and I were Biden delegates. We were strong supporters of his. We thought he was the right person at the right time to balance the extremes in our country. And I still believe that to be true, uh, that he remains the right person at the right time. But I just I see the coverage and it just sickens me to see how much and even the late night shows that make the jokes, they're always joking about Joe Biden's age. And honestly, he's much healthier mentally and physically. He rides a bike. Yeah, he may fall off, but he's not falling off. <laughs> golf I mean, really, a golf cart is not exactly exercise. So, right. I, you know, I, I just I wish the the press would cover the ill health and age of Trump at least as much as they pursue uh, Biden's age, because he's a younger person at his age than Trump is at his, and he's only a few years younger. It's not like there's a year. No, they're, 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 they're both, uh, they both make Ronald Reagan in uh, 1980 look like a very young man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think the advice from, from you is get out and vote and be involved in politics and make sure that you understand, you know, read Jonathan Carroll's book, yeah. read the papers that portray facts and get off social media, which is unvetted yeah. and where people can say anything. That is to me, the scariest part of this. I, I wanna go back to the era where facts mattered and where Republicans listened and there was bipartisan cooperation. And I don't think it's impossible to do. And no, it's not. Your book gives us some hope that it is possible to return to a GOP like there was, I don't know. What, what, when do you think the decline started? Was it Donald Trump or was it a long time before Donald Trump? I mean, you know, D D uh, Dana Milbank of the Washington Post wrote, wrote a book that makes the case that this goes, you know, back to, uh, uh, you know, essentially to to the Gingrich era and, and even before. But but I, I but look, this is different. This is different. I mean, the, the the Trump era is different. It is uh, it is fundamentally a a lack of respect for rule of law uh, from from a party that that you know has made the case that it stands for rule of law. Um, so it, this is different. So I, I think you can have you can all have all kinds of talk, and you know that's fine. You could talk about how Republicans lost their way at any different point or. Those are debates I'll, I'll let others have, but but this is this is different. This is different. Well, thank well, you for writing the book, and maybe it doesn't matter when it started. It's when will it end? It's worse than Watergate, and it must end. Oh, it's much worse than Watergate. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you guys. Thank again. you Let's very talk. much. Write another book and come back. <laughs> All right. Take care. We'll see you. Thanks thank so much. you. Bye bye.
so that was a really interesting episode, Jill. And, you know, we talked a little bit in the episode about the difference in coverage when it comes to Joe Biden's age, who's now 81 years old, and Donald Trump's age, who is 77 years old. Um, you know, like you said, Joe Biden, at least as far as we can tell, is still very, very active. He maintains a very regular schedule. He travels a lot. You know, he traveled to two war zones during his presidency. He's gone to, you know, I remember his trip to Southeast Asia. He did that in basically three days and then came back to America and he was back on regular schedule. So, you know, it seems like he's still very active, but you wouldn't know that from the the amount of coverage that he gets um, in the media about his age and his lack of mental capacity. Um, you know, I wrote this Chicago Tribune op-ed um, recently about um, you know, a Gen Zers advice for President Biden and how he can uh, win. And I and I briefly mentioned um, something about his age and how, you know, his age is not going away anytime soon and how the administration, how the campaign can combat it. But you had a great response to my op-ed. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I, I wrote a letter to the editor to supplement your uh, article, uh, which we should put a link to both um, your opinion piece and my letter to the editor, as well as, by the way, to Jonathan Carroll's book. So Absolutely. there will be a link there for all three of those. And basically my point was that age is just a number and there's really no difference between the few years difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And that in my opinion, Joe Biden is the healthier person of the two, not only mentally, but in terms of physical activity, he does ride a bike. He uh, isn't riding in a golf cart. Donald Trump plays golf and doesn't always make it 18 holes, but he doesn't even walk the course. He rides in a cart. That's not exercise. And I think that his mental gaffes have increased dramatically. And it angers me that the press covers gaffes that Joe Biden, who's never been the best speaker. I mean, he's had a speech impediment uh, since childhood, but he's conquered that. I mean, I don't think you hear much of the stutter that he used to have. Um, but OK, so he's not a great orator. We need a president who has the foreign policy experience. I mean, I cannot imagine having Donald Trump fly off the handle at what's going on in several war zones and his favoritism to Putin um, and what would happen to Ukraine, which is standing on the defense of democracy uh, adjacent to Russia. And I can't imagine how he would handle the Hamas attack and who he would side with there, even though he's has been a strong supporter of Israel. He praised Hezbollah. Yeah, he did. And so I just I think that the coverage hasn't been fair. And I wish that people would demand of their newspapers that they give at least fair coverage to both sides of this issue. Of course, age is an issue, but I no one can predict whether a 50 year old is going to die or an 80 year old is going to die. And is there a difference between Donald Trump overweight and lazy as he is versus Biden? I I'll go with Biden any day of the week. You know, it it seems like 
the media, at least to me, is trying to find all like the smallest of things and trying to connect that to his age. And there was a great actually Huffington Post um, article that was written up over the weekend about Kevin McCarthy attacking Joe Biden for using um, notes. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy's 58 years old. And the headline, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was like, even Kevin McCarthy as a 58 year old has to use notes. And they included a bunch of pictures of Kevin McCarthy in public using notes in front of him saying, this isn't about age. This is just something that all politicians do. But Republicans try to frame this as an indication that President Biden is old and that, you know, he doesn't have the capacity to remember things. You know, I, I can guarantee you anyone who's ever gone in public and, and, you know, given a speech, you know, there might be a few people who don't use notes, but most people have a note card in front of them, have some sort of, you know, written out speech in front of them. Otherwise, you know, you'd be crazy not to. So it, it, it's so absurd what they're trying to do. But I, I hope that more publications will do what the you know, Huffington Post does and says, you know, look, if, if you want to try to attack Biden for what he's doing, let's look at other examples of younger people doing the exact same things. Um, and you know, most politicians use teleprompters. Yes. And we know what happens when Donald Trump veers off what's written in front of him. That's when he makes these insanely crazy statements. Wow. What's written, and if he stays on, on that, he's less crazy. But when he's speaking freely, that's when it's dangerous. I'd rather he have notes and stick to the script because he's too dangerous off script. You would just say it's an indication of his high IQ. <laughs> well, saying it doesn't make a truth. You know, that, Victor. <laughs> That's very true. And, um, you know, I I have learned from this podcast, too, that age is just a number because I have to keep up with Jill basically every day. So <laughs> that is a miracle. Um, And, you know, I, I do agree. I, I hope that people will see that the, the gaffes that Trump makes and the things that come out of his mouth are a far greater danger and threat to our democracy than the occasion. But so are his policies. And I his, mean, poli right, yeah, yeah. his policies are what really is scary because right. in the second administration, he's learned enough from the first time to make sure that he can implement them the second time. And, and the type, are scary. That, the type of people that John Carl was mentioning about who would be in a possible second Trump term I mean, Sebastian Gorka, Mike Flynn, like these are not Roger Stone, Roger <laughs> Stone, like just it's terrifying. We, we can't. Bannon, Manafort, all, all of the people he pardoned <laughs> government. I mean, think about that. Criminals, people yeah. who have been convicted and pardoned by him so that he could bring them back. It's yeah. it's terrifying. Terrifying. You all know what to do. Um, you know, buy Jonathan's book and then also register to vote. Tell your friends to register to vote. Go out there and vote in 2024. We can't take anything for granted. This um, Liz Cheney has been warning about this uh, since her book came out that if Donald Trump wins, this might be the last election that we can vote in. So I'm and take that as a very alarming bell. Um, Another thing to do is subscribe for free to this podcast so that you yes. never miss an episode. That too, yes. Thank you everyone for watching this episode of iGen Politics. Like Jill said, uh, subscribe here if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening wherever you follow your podcast, we are there. So be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or comment and let us know what you thought of this episode. We will be back next week with a new episode of iGen Politics. Uh, but in the meantime, have a great rest of your week and we will see you all next week.